Father, we give you this room. We give you this time. We give you our attention and our hearts and our ears and our eyes. Feel strongly compelled to pray against any device of the evil one that would seek to distract or destroy. Um, Lord, we just name and claim this space as a place where you are free to work. And so we bring the powers of God who is one in three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit between us and anything that would seek uh, our harm. And instead, Jesus, invite you to make your kingship and your reign and your power known in this place. Let's just do the, uh, we fall down a couple more times.
cry of our hearts, Jesus, is that we love you. And where we have loved you imperfectly, we thank you for your grace. Where we have loved you well, uh, we thank you for your grace. So come, Holy Spirit, as we open our word, open your word together, as we give you our attention. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Um, it's just good to explain things as they happen, right? So we read that passage of scripture, Psalm 138. It says, before the other gods, I sing your praise. So you think you're just coming to church to sing some songs that you like. You're actually engaging in spiritual warfare, okay? We are making a declaration to the cosmic powers that be about the way the world actually is. So we're opposed in that. We're opposed in that. I've noticed uh, about the last two or three times I've been preaching that it has felt increasingly like I'm climbing a mountain. And I, I'm told I make this look easy. I want to assure you it's not. This sermon is, this is the fourth draft of this sermon this week that's highly unusual for me. It's usually one or two and I'm done. But I think as we get further and further and further, oh, thank you, Joey, onto the, onto the cutting edge of the kingdom, um, there's just more and more opposition. So the reason I say that to you this morning is please pray for me while I preach, yeah? Okay. Please pray for me while I preach, yeah? Because we're doing this together, right? This is a, a corporate declaration we make to the cosmic powers that be about the way that the world is. And so we sing and we shout our praise. I, I've been shouting in praise not because I want to, but because I'm being obedient, okay? Um, Preston and I were talking about this this week. Um, I don't like shouting in praise, but scripture tells me to, so I'm doing it, right? Um, Preston said, that's how I feel about raising my hands. He doesn't like doing it, but scripture says to do it, so we do it, right? Um, and so uh, we're going to war together. Um, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our enemy are not Republicans or Democrats or progressives or conservatives, right? We're not fighting a culture war. We're fighting a spiritual battle. So if you got your Bible, meet me in Luke 16, Luke 16. St. Thomas Aquinas called it a violent necessity. Dorothy Sayers uh, says, to repudiate it means to repudiate Christ altogether. 
To repudiate it means to repudiate Christ altogether. Of it, C.S. Lewis says this, it's on the screen, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. I am talking, of course, about hell. We're starting a new series this morning. It's called Muted. It's a series about why your friends, your neighbors, your family, your kids, your grandkids, it's why they don't want to be a Christian. Because they have this question, how could a good and loving God send people to hell? How could a good and loving God send people to hell? Few aspects of Christian theology are as troubling as is the doctrine of hell. But let's be honest, this is a series about what your friends are thinking, but it's also a series about what you're thinking, right? It's a series about what you're thinking. It's a series about aspects of what it means to follow Jesus that if we could, we would just put on mute and hope that nobody would really notice. So why are we so quick to deny the existence of hell? What does the Bible actually say about hell? And more importantly, how are we supposed to live knowing that these things are true? That's what we're going to try to accomplish in the next half hour. Okay, let's be real. The next 40 minutes. Um, If I do my job right, I will actually leave you unsettled. Okay? If I do my job right, uh, you'll be irked. You'll be alerted. Uh, and that's why at the end of this series, we're going we're gonna to go after some hard stuff. Next week, we're talking about hypocrisy in our own lives and in the institution of the church. Steph's going to talk about hedonism and why our culture's pursuit of pleasure is what stops people from following the way of Jesus. In the last week, November 14th, we're going to talk about the Bible's holistic approach to sexuality, even in the midst of our LGBTQ moment. And so uh, that Sunday, the 14th, we will do a lunch after that gathering Uh, for some Q&R, question and response. I don't have answers, but I do have responses. (laughs) Um, And so we'll do that. So if if questions arise today in the Sermon on Hell, write them down and we'll try to go after them together on the 14th. Um, But uh, somebody said of me prophetically recently, uh, the book of Jeremiah, which I've been studying a lot, and there's this part where Jeremiah, says, it says Jeremiah ate the scroll, he ate the book. I'm just trying to, this is my attempt at eating the book with you. Okay? Not eating the parts of the sandwich I like, eating the book. See what I mean? Yeah, going after it. So we're going to talk about Luke 16, but first, let's start where every sermon on hell should start, in 16th century medieval artwork. (laughs) You nailed that timing. Good job, Amanda. Thank you. (laughs) Now, 500 years ago, you and I would have been living on some duke or duchess's land, okay? We would be living in a hut, and we would be scraping the earth uh, to, for a harvest. We'd be scraping the hard earth for a meager harvest, and we would reap it, and then out from the castle would come the tax collector who would take most of what we just harvested back up to the castle, back up to the Lord and the lady for them to have, and you and I and our children would starve through the winter. If we were lucky, only one of us would die, and it would never once occur to us to say, this is unfair. It would never once occur to us to say, no taxation without representation. Why? 
Well, that's because on Sundays, you and your family and all of the other peasants put on your best burlap sack and walked through the gate of the castle onto the chapel, into the chapel. And as, as you sat there in a mass that was being performed in Latin, I mean, sometimes it might feel like I'm speaking Latin, but I mean like actual Latin, right? You don't know this language. You get bored really fast, and so you start kind of letting your eyes wander around the room. And, and as you do, you see paintings and frescoes, and if you were Lord or Lady was very wealthy, a, a, maybe some stained glass. And it would be pictures like that one. There's Jesus knocking at the door, like in the book of Revelation. Or uh, there's, there's Moses coming down from the mountain, his face shining, holding the tablets. Or Jesus at his baptism, the Spirit coming down. But somewhere in that chapel, there was a picture that looked like this. There's all the people in cauldrons being boiled while these demons kind of poke them with a poker and this guy's got chains coming off of his shoulders. I don't know what that is about, but it doesn't look good, and there's lots of fire. And above that picture, where, you know, one of those peasants kind of looks like your Uncle Norm, um, uh, one of those, above that picture would be a picture of heaven. And it would just be tables with wine and cheese and good food. And people's faces were round and not hollow from starvation. And the streets were paved with gold and there are angels singing and it looks so wonderful to be there. And the message was very, very clear in medieval Christianity. Behave the Lord and lady. Give them the taxes you owe them and you can go to heaven. And if you don't, Now, fast forward 500 years, and our understanding of heaven and hell hasn't really advanced all that much. We tend to think of hell as a place where our loved ones are poked by people out of horror costumes, uh, horror movies. I mean, medieval paintings like this, Hieronymus Bosch uh, kind of turned it into an art form. A lot of the things that are depicted in this literally are the things that you will see walking through your neighborhood on trick-or-treat. It has inspired the modern horror genre. Um, uh, 500 years in the future, we kind of think of hell that way as this place where our like, loved ones go to be tortured because they just weren't nice enough. And, and when we think of heaven, we, we sort of see what they saw in those paintings in their chapels. We think of heaven as sort of like an all-inclusive resort that goes on forever. And there's no sickness and no sadness and no suffering. And my body works the way I want it to work. My emotions work the way I want it to work. And, and all the people I've ever loved are there with me. Right? And so heaven is really just this extended vacation where I get to like sip drinks with little umbrellas by the beach with Jesus maybe. Doesn't really matter if he's there or not as long as grandma is, Right? Now listen, hear me on this real fast. I have four children, three of whom are in heaven. So this is not like a laughing matter to me, but what we've done in American Christianity in particular, and we've inherited it from medieval Christianity, is we've confused why heaven will be good with why heaven will be enjoyable. See, heaven will be enjoyable because grandma's there and your loved ones are there and the food will be good and you know it'll be like the Grand Canyon times infinity everywhere you look, just beautiful. 
But that's why heaven will be enjoyable. Here's why heaven will be good. Heaven will be good because we will dwell forever in love for God and in love of, from God. And then with a whole bunch of people who have that same love, who have laid down their lives for this Jesus in this kingdom. Steph and I are part of, our, our church is part of a ministry network called 3DM, and uh, we're all kind of pursuing very similar things in local churches. And when the pandemic happened, we had not been in the same room for two, week, for two years until just this past September. And as we worshiped together, I thought to myself, this is actually what heaven is going to be like. It's going to be all of these people who have laid down their life for this king and this cause finally reunited. Right? But if that's what heaven is, that's not what a lot of us think of heaven. And that's why we have a bad view of hell. Because we have a bad view of heaven, because heaven is just like this extended vacation where Jesus may or Jesus' presence doesn't really matter to us. Right? Because it's like this extended vacation. Of course it's easy to start to say, isn't God just being a jerk for not giving that to everybody? Like what kind of loving God doesn't give everybody on earth an extended vacation in Cabo? Right? And what could a person possibly do that's so evil that could prevent them from going there? What could a person do that's so evil that could send them to that place? Right? It starts to feel like God is this God is this, like, uh, withholding parent. We surprised everybody and said, we're all going to Disney World, but one of the kids didn't pick their underwear up off the floor and put it in the hamper, so they, the hamper, so they have to stay home, right? They didn't clean their plates, so they have to stay. It's like, like God is being trifling. So what does the Bible actually say about hell? What does the Bible actually say about hell? Let's start uh, with a definition, and let's start by looking at the words of Jesus. Here's my attempt at a definition of hell. Uh, give me that one, Amanda. It's the one with the bold lines. Hell is a real place. The destiny of those who reject God and his ways as an expression of God's righteous justice against wrongdoing. Hell is a real place. The destiny of those who reject God and his ways as an expression of God's righteous justice against wrongdoing. As, as much as we struggle with the reality of hell, as, as much as we struggle with its reality, I don't want to call hell a concept. I want to, excuse me, I want to call it a reality. Yeah? Um, as much as we struggle with its reality, we find that the Bible clearly teaches that hell is a real place. We find that the church has for 2,000 years confessed hell to be a place. We believe that Jesus lived, died, was buried. The, the creeds say he descended into hell and then on the third day rose again from the dead. So we believe, you, you can believe that there's not a hell, you just also can't be a Christian, okay? It's like you can't be a Christian and, and believe that Jesus isn't the Son of God. You're welcome to believe that, you just can't call yourself a Christian, right? Because you're operating in different, it's like the difference between Apple, the best operating system, and Android. You can have a phone, it's just not going to be a good phone at the same time. So... Um, so what does the Bible say about hell? Well, we got to start with Jesus, and, and this is the biggest stumbling block for a lot of people. Uh, Jesus talks more about hell than anybody else in the New Testament. He talks about it more than Paul, which, you know, people like to think Paul's kind of a jerk who hates women. So you'd think that Paul says that, right? But he doesn't, right? It's not John. It, it's, it's Paul. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus who says this. Look, at, look with me at Luke 16. 
Luke 16, just a little story that Jesus tells. It's really encouraging. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen, who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Jesus is a really good storyteller. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. There, in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. As the great theologian Michael Scott says, my, 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 how the turntables. (laughs) Verse 25, but Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he's here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I don't want him to, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. And Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. In this passage, Jesus describes, place, describes a place of torment and anguish and fire and pain And this gives rise to a view of hell uh, among the church called eternal conscious torment. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Eternal, it goes on forever. It does not end. Conscious, you are always aware of the torment that, like I said, goes on forever. Eternal conscious torment. Uh, One theologian describes it as a place of eternal conscious torment for the wicked. But wait, there's more. As we look at the whole of Scripture, there's this kind of line of thinking about the destiny of the wicked, especially in Psalms, but it's echoed in the New Testament. Psalm 92.7 says, Though the wicked spring up like grass and evildoers flourish, they will be destroyed forever. There are passages in the Old Testament and the New that speak of the destruction of the wicked. It's echoed by the New Testament passages that speak of this destruction, 2 Peter 2, 1 Timothy 6, Philippians 3, just to name a few. This gives rise to, and this is where I'm going to freak you out, another equally possible, equally credible view of what hell looks like, which is called annihilationism. Hell is is how whoever and whatever cannot be redeemed by God is ultimately put out of existence or annihilated. Now, some people say that there's some eternal conscious torment that comes to an end with annihilation. Some people just say you die and you're done. This gets really, really messy, because are we created to be eternal beings or are we not? 
Scripture says that God's love endures forever. Is it God's love enduring forever by giving them what people, giving people what they want forever, or is it God being loving forever by putting them to an end? See, here's the thing that we do. And and let me tell you why I'm telling you both options. Because I've spent about 20 hours this week thinking about hell. It's been a great week. (laughs) And, uh, I read Eternal Conscious Torment, and I'm convinced, and then I read Annihilationism, I'm convinced. I talk with Ken Shea, I'm convinced, then I read some more, and I'm convinced. Throughout the history of the church, both of these views have been held credibly, right? I can send you some podcasts if you want to figure out which one you land, but the core of it is believing that hell is a real place, the destiny of those who reject God in his ways as an expression of God's righteous justice against wrongdoing. See, here's the thing that we sort of start to do. We get a little disturbed by what the Bible teaches, so we obsess about the details as a way to escape the reality. We do this with the end times all the time. Well, I'm pre-trib, I'm mid-trib, I'm post-trib, I'm no-trib. Some of you are like, I don't know what that means. Don't worry about it. Right? I'm pre-mill, I'm post-mill, I'm a-mill. The book of Revelation says that the locusts are helicopters. No, the locusts are, the, you know, I mean, we go on and on and on. And what we do is we get so obsessed with the details that we forget the purpose of end times theology is this. Jesus wins, live like you win the game, and be at peace. Okay? The details will work themselves out. Same with the doctrine of hell, Right? We're so disturbed by it. Who's in and who's out? What is it like and how do I know that we kind of jettison the whole thing and forget that it's calling us to live a certain kind of way? How's it going to call us to live? We're going to get to that by the end. But Francis Chan has this really great book called Erasing Hell. I've not read it, but the point of the title makes sense because we're constantly trying to erase hell, aren't we? Right? Because, yeah, Jesus says it, I understand that, yeah, the church believes it, but, but still, how could a good and loving God do this? Right? No matter the case, we look at these verses, one theologian says, one theologian says that the verses about hell make us realize the immensity of the evil that is found in sin and rebellion against God and the magnitude of the holiness and justice of God that calls forth this kind of punishment. See, that's how we erase hell. We, we either mess with God's character or we mess with the reality of human sin. But there's a third reality we need to get to, and when you hold all three of those realities in tension, it makes it impossible to erase hell. So I want us just to dive a little further into the text to see what does the Bible say, what are these three realities, and then we'll talk about what we need to do about it, okay? Three realities to sin, God's character and nature, the gravity of human sin and rebellion, and Satan's power. So first thing, the reality of hell springs from God's character. It is his justice and his holiness and his righteousness, hear me, and his love and mercy on display all at the same time. What we like to do is, is sideline, that's Francis Chan's word, sideline certain aspects of God's character to put others in the center But God doesn't work that way. He is all of who he is and more all of the time. So when God is demonstrating his justice and wrath, he is also demonstrating his mercy and his love and his kindness. And there is something within God's character that makes it so that sin and rebellion against him and his righteous rule in the world, it has to be acted upon. Like God can't just sit there and watch it happen. So like, let's look at Exodus chapter 34, Exodus 34, six and seven. 
This is uh, the Lord's business card, kind of. Uh, it's when he introduces himself to Moses. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Kyle, where's hell in there? But I do not excuse the guilty. Right? For God to be just and fair means he can't just not respond to sin. That's why Psalm 89.14 says, Your throne is founded on two strong pillars. The one is justice, and the under is righteousness. Righteousness means that God does what is right. Right? There is something within God's character that he, that, that he has to address sin. In the same way, Cornelius Plantinga, in his book, uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, uh, talks about it as God almost has like an allergic reaction to sin. It's like you get a piece of dust up in your nose and you sneeze it out. That's what happens to sin. Right? God, God has to kind of have this response to sin because of the nature of his character. So there's God's character that leads to the reality of sin, there's all, uh, of hell, but there's also the reality of human sin and rebellion. The book of Romans says this in Romans 3, all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. It goes on. And if that weren't enough, Psalm 51 says that human beings are born in sin. That's hard to believe when you got a little tiny baby and you're snuggling them and they're all cute. It's really easy to believe when they turn about mm, 18 months. <laughs> and here's what I find. The way that we try to find our way around hell and kind of say, okay, yeah, Jesus, I get it, and da 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 But if, if we have this bad view of hell in our heads because we have this bad view of heaven in our heads, what we'll do is we'll kind of overemphasize certain parts of God's character and downplay the weight of human sin as a way of getting rid of hell, right? I mean, God says he's loving, so let's, how, how is it possible, right, that he could send these people to hell? Well, what we've done is we've sidelined certain aspects of God, elevated others, and then what we also do is we downplay the reality of human sin, we downplay our own evil. We downplay our wickedness. W.H. Uh, Auden, the poet, says, we shan't, since Hitler and Stalin, ever trust ourselves again. Right? And if that weren't enough, another poet says, the essence of evil is to hide itself. Right? We're really good at dismissing our own evil. We're really good at dismissing our behavior while holding other people on the same hook, aren't we? Right? So... So it's easy to kind of make this adjustment if we ignore that third reality at the bottom of the triangle, that reality that holds them all in tension, and that reality is Satan's power. In Romans 3.9, that verse that was on the screen, can you go back to that, Amanda? I'm sorry, I'm jumping around a little bit. Um, I don't know if you notice, it says that we are under the power of sin. Paul is helping us build a worldview that sin is not just behavior incidentally it's a cosmic power okay that's like holding us in its thrall and so Karl Barth uh, the German theologian says man cannot go forward he stands under a historical power and can do nothing what is the historical power it is Satan 
And so Fleming Rutledge, an Episcopal priest, she says that we need to think of hell as a reality of both personal guilt and cosmic evil. Personal guilt and cosmic evil. By the way, just as a footnote, why am I bringing so many people with me today? Like, why so many quotes? Not to show you I'm smart. I want to show you that, like, there's this weight of the people of Jesus from Aquinas and even beforehand that are just saying that this is the logical reality of the way of Jesus, right? For God to do anything else would be morally irresponsible. So I'm trying to just bring along these people. So we have this personal guilt and a cosmic power. If it was just personal guilt, we could downplay that and emphasize God's love and move on. But if there's a cosmic power that needs to be addressed, then it doesn't matter what we do to God's character. It doesn't matter what we do to the weight of our sin. There's, some, there's a third reality. In the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, our first parents, Adam and Eve, fall into sin. Right? God has put them in a garden and said, you can have everything you want, just not that thing right there. Okay? And then this is what happened in Genesis uh, chapter 3. You can go there with me if you want. Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Verse 25 of chapter 2, it says, Now the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The word naked and shrewd uh, sound like the same, so it's almost in, in Hebrew, so it's like they're saying, they're nude, he's shrewd. They're in trouble. One day he asked the woman, did God really say, and the serpent, by the way, has been identified in the early church throughout history as the evil one. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees of the garden? God didn't say that. He's lying to her. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat uh, eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Verse 4, he says, you won't die. Now let's just stop and recognize that the enemy's tactic from the very beginning was to get us confused about death and what comes after. Okay? You won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced, and she saw the tree was beautiful, and the fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her, so she took some of the fruit and ate it, and she gave it to her husband, who ate with her too. And at that moment, suddenly their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. See, here's the thing. We tend to read that passage as individualists living in 21st century America, so we just see personal guilt there. We just see personal guilt in that passage. But the reality in this moment is that as Adam and Eve obey Satan, they exit their covenant with the Lord and enter covenant with him. Because we are in covenant with whatever we obey. We are in covenant with whatever we obey. This is why there's not a lot of neutrality in the words of Jesus when it comes to heaven and hell. Right? Because in his mind, you're on one of two sides. You're either with the allies or you're with the axis. There is no Switzerland option. You are either with us or against us. Right? And again, this is why Karl Barth also says uh, that man falls into the power of Satan, into the hands of a foreign power. 
We're in the hands of a foreign power. Hell, Jesus teaches us, is the place created for the punishment of Satan and his angels, and therefore anyone that's in covenant with him will also go where he's going. And we may be in covenant with him unwittingly. I mean, we're not like all of us, you know, every non-Christian you know isn't also like practicing Wicca, right? It may be unknowingly, it may be innocently, but we begin to serve ourself. And in serving ourself, we are ultimately serving the evil one. Enter Jesus. Enter Jesus. Who comes, and in Matthew 7, he says, you can enter God's kingdom only by the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, its gate is wide for the many who choose that way, but the gateway to to life is very narrow and difficult and only a few ever find it. Jesus says that the norm, hear me, we're doing a lot of work today. The norm, not the exception, is hell. See, what we've done since the enlightenment is we flipped it because we think people are innately good, right? And we think of hell as this vacation spot. I mean, heaven is this vacation spot, and hell is this really bad place. So really, isn't everybody kind of just meeting good enough? I mean, I've never killed anybody. Isn't everybody good enough to ultimately end up there? Right? But Jesus says it's the opposite that's true. Heaven is not the norm, and hell the exception. Hell is the norm, and heaven is the exception. And y'all, hear me. That is why Jesus came. That is why Jesus came. Hebrews chapter 2, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. 1 John chapter 3 verse 8, to this end was the Son of God made manifest, that he would destroy the works of the devil Jesus, there's all this really interesting New Testament literature about how the authors of the Gospels aren't just presenting Jesus as a nice miracle worker, but as a warrior. He's the warrior king put forth in front of all humanity to end our oppression, to end what is killing us, to end what is threatening us. And so Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life. And he goes to the cross and he is sinless. And all the evil of the cosmos comes running onto him. All of human evil and all of spiritual evil go running and attach themselves to Jesus' body. And as he hangs there, the wrath of God is emptied out on Jesus and it kills him. But then Jesus rises again. And Paul says he puts to open shame the forces of the evil one. He became sin who knew no sin. He became sin for us, even though he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, the cross is what brings these three aspects of hell together. It is the demonstration of God's mercy and love and righteous wrath against sin. It's how God deals with the gravity of human sin and rebellion. It's also how God addresses Satan's power. Colossians chapter 2, he canceled the the record of charges against us and took it away. 
by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. It is the cross that brings these realities together. And so Francis Chan says, hell is the backdrop that reveals the profound and unbelievable grace of the cross. It brings to light the enormity of our sin and therefore portrays the undeserved favor of God in full color. So here's the question. How could a good and loving God send anyone to hell? That's the question. Here is the answer. God does not send anyone to hell. Did you see what Jesus said in Matthew 7? The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. It's a matter of choosing. C.S. Lewis uh, says this too. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there, there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not the question of God sending us to hell, in each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. I've been writing this sentence and deleting it and then writing it and then deleting it and writing it, and this is the sentence. The only people that will be in hell are the people who want to be there. This is why our view of heaven is just so important. Because if, if heaven is just this good place that God is withholding like a jerk from nice people, then we do have a problem. But, but the reality is we're thinking about, about heaven all wrong because among us are people who in decision after decision sow into their lives anger and greed and grumbling and judgment and lust and control and they do that through their 20s and their 30s and their 40s and their 50s and they wake up one day in their 70s and 80s and they are little, little more than their anger. They are little more than their lust. Hugh Hefner, right? Can you imagine being such a person in heaven? Being in a place where the love of God is made manifest, where love for him and love from him and love for one another is set loose to, in the words of the theologian, Buzz Lightyear, infinity and beyond. For people like that, heaven would actually be hell. But there are those who sow love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control through their 20s and their 30s and their 40s and their 50s, and it's like an investment it yields greater returns. And then in their 70s and 80s, it is almost like, and John Wesley called this Christian perfection, it is almost like they are without sin. 
because anger and greed and judgment, it's just not a temptation for them anymore because they have become a person of love. They've become ready for heaven. There was a Greek philosopher who wrote half a millennium before Jesus. And he said this, character is destiny. Character is destiny. Paul puts it this way, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So we have all of these friends and family and neighbors who are, through their actions, showing us who they are. A friend of mine always says, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. And we keep trying to not believe them in vain hope that God won't believe them either. What you and I are called to do in this moment is to intervene with the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel, right? The basic work that we're called to do as followers of Jesus is repenting and believing, to change our minds and to take a step of faith. So here's what we need to change our minds about. First of all, if any of this sermon, and I don't think it is, but if any of this sermon is creating in you a moral superiority, that's not the way of Jesus. Because all we are is the people that got plucked off the highway to hell and shown the way to the narrow gate, right? So there's no room for anger or judgment or feeling like you're better for someone because you're going to heaven and they're going to hell, okay? We also need to repent. We need to change our minds about our attempts to help God be more fair and more loving because that's what we're worried about. When we ask questions about how can a good and loving God, da-da-da-da-da, right, our worry deep down is that God really isn't being fair and isn't being loving, and so out of maybe a, a good heart, we're trying to help him right? So what we need to repent of is our lack of faith that at the end of the day, we will discover God to be more fair and more loving and more just than we ever thought imaginable. I'm leaving a lot of questions unanswered, right? Who's in and who's out? And what if they've never heard the gospel? What if the gospel, what if a missionary never went to them? I mean, that's a genuine concern to our community. We've got missionaries here, right? There's all sorts of these questions. My response to that is at the end of the day, we will be finding God more just, more loving, and more trustworthy because of this. We will love God more because of the existence of hell. I know that's crazy. We will love him more and find him to be even more just. But the other thing that we need to repent of, friends, this is the thing we need to repent of most, is the reality that we want hell to go away because if it did, it would just be easier for us, wouldn't it? It would just be so much easier. I wouldn't have to give everyone in my neighborhoods and networks an opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the good news of Jesus. I wouldn't have to be a missionary. I wouldn't have to be uncomfortable. I could kind of just come to church and enjoy the music and, and feel that comfort and go about my business and not live as if I have this one life to live where, the, where when it ends, the only thing, you know the only thing you and I aren't going to be able to do in heaven? The only thing you and I aren't going to be able to do in heaven is say, I'm sorry, because we won't need to anymore. And we also won't be able to tell anybody about Jesus because everybody's there, right? They all know. But we just want hell to go away because it would just be easier. 
comfortable. Wouldn't have to be up nights worrying about my children or my grandchildren or my parents or my friends or my siblings. Wouldn't have to go to this church that the guy up front's always poking at me. But if hell exists, if hell exists, you and I would crawl across broken glass to tell somebody. If hell exists, you and I would walk across a football field of Legos barefoot. If hell exists, you would leave everything you've ever known and live in a hut somewhere to tell somebody. Charles Spurgeon says this, my brothers and sisters, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Uh, here's, I'm not asking you to do this. I'm not asking you to call your best friend and said, say, you're going to hell if you don't stop. Please, please don't do that. I, I, I want you provoked. I don't want you anxious. And out of that provokedness, to, to doubly lean into the stuff we're doing in our blessed groups, to doubly lean into people of peace, right? To trust the process, to trust that the Lord is at work, that he is good and fair. But let it be said of us, let it be said of us that they had to leap over our bodies. Yeah? Let it be said of us that we grabbed them by the knees. Let it be said of us that it is filled with the teeth of our exertions. Amen. So first, I'm just going to invite you to take a deep breath. Let's all just, okay, right? That was, I said, Jack was sick this week, and so I almost didn't come, and I said, I, I can't, you know, just thrust response time on someone this week. <laughs> this is not the week to be like, you can try it. It'll be fine. Go for it. Okay. You're just only a little laugh. Okay. Um, so here at Regen, we do response time because we don't just want to hear the word of God and then be like someone who looks in a mirror and forgets what he looks like and just walks away unchanged. We want to be different. And so um, I, was, I was thinking as Kyle was preaching, because you know, I was here for the first service and, and hearing it the second time, I was just so struck by the enemy's desire to deceive that even in this thing, he wants to deceive us because it minimizes our need for Jesus. Mm because if we don't have hell, we don't, we don't need him as much. And so I just, his, his fingerprints are all over this cultural moment and the way our culture views hell and the, and the way that they're kind of responding back to us about that. Um, but during response time, we want to take a moment and just listen to the Father and what is he inviting you to this week? How is he getting your attention? And so maybe it's one of those things that Kyle talked about at the end that you feel like you need to repent of. Maybe it's even just, I've not been fervent in prayer because I've not really felt like it's that important. It doesn't really make that big of a difference. Maybe it's the courage to speak out when you're asked, when there's a question. 
Um, so we're just going to take a moment, and I'm going to invite you just to um, ask the Father how he's getting your attention this morning. So let's take that. Father, we come before you, and today we just confess that our culture has worn us down in so many ways, and that it's so hard to kind of hold on to this truth in the midst of so many messages of how it just can't be that way if you're loving or if you're fair. So we confess that we've let culture speak more into our beliefs than we have you and your word. So I pray um, over myself and over these dear brothers and sisters here in the room and those listening that we would be um, refreshed by your words today and even though they are hard, that they would still strengthen us. That just an increased faith in Jesus and who you are and what you came to do and what you accomplished would leave with us today, would overflow into our lives, into the things that we say and do this week. Father, I pray for those um, here today maybe who uh, don't even know if they believe you. I pray that you would not allow the enemy to, to twist anything today, but that they would hear your love for them and the links at which you came to save them, to rescue them, to know them. Father, I pray that as a spiritual family that we would be devoted to prayer, that we would be fervent in believing that you transform and change lives, and that we would not grow weary in doing good, but that we would continue so that we can reap a harvest, and so that lives and hearts can be transformed, that our valley can be different, can be your kingdom, a place where heaven has come to earth. We ask these things in your